good morning, Connection. So glad that you have joined us today. My name is John, and uh, get the honor to serve as one of our pastors here. And so just, again, thankful um, to be here, thankful to be together. Um, and as you saw in that video, I do encourage you um, to take time um, to pray you know, specifically for this people group. We know that Scripture tells us um, that prayer is powerful and effective, and we believe that through prayer um, we can see God do great works. And so um, seemingly impossible tasks like an entire unreached people group um, are possible because um, our God has made a way for his, um, his um, truth to, to make it to um, every single um, place that um, it is taken. And so just encourage you to, to pray that that um, continues to take place and we see just God um, move in some incredible ways. Um, today we are continuing in this series called The Appearing. And this was something going into the Christmas season where we get to celebrate the appearing of Jesus in the form of a baby through Christmas. Um, we, we wanted to do something to kind of highlight um, what, what happened when Jesus came on the scene. And so um, we decided to go through the first three chapters of the book of John. And while John does not have um, the kind of the classic Christmas story in it, what we do see is it's the beginning of his ministry. And so what did take place whenever Jesus came on the scene? What was going on? What, what happened when he kind of appeared and really started his ministry? Um, that's what we've been going through. And this is going to take us all the way up to um, Christmas. And so we've gotten through um, John chapter 1, and we are going to be picking up in John chapter 2 today. So if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. We are going to be reading the first um, 11 verses of John chapter 2. And my goal today, what I hope to be able to accomplish is I want to look at these 11 verses. Um, I want to read through it. Um, I want to try to provide a little bit of context of kind of what's going on here. Um, but there's, there's these three verses that are kind of in the middle of it that would be easy to kind of um, look past that I feel like um, I want to pull out. And I feel like that there's something for us um, to be able to, to look at and be able to apply in our lives um, and, and really see how we can grow um, in our faith through that. And so hopefully through this, um, that'll be able to take place. And so what I want to do, I want to go ahead and read these 11 verses to give us kind of an understanding of what we're, we're talking about. And then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to dive in. All right? Sound good? We ready? We excited? Woo! All right. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, um, God, just for the opportunity to be gathered in your name and worship. Um, God, for already what you've done um, in our service, God, and how you've just been amongst us. And so thankful um, that we have the opportunity um, to just to sing to you, to celebrate you. Um, and now the opportunity to um, look at your word, God, and to see, um, God, though this is a familiar passage, one that many of us have um, read many a times, 
um, that, God, you would pull out something new. You would pull out something that maybe you want to reveal to us. You want to teach us. You want us to grow in um, through something so familiar. And so, um, Father, we're just um, we're thankful to be together, thankful um, for you, for your son, for your grace. And we just lift all this up in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So to provide a little context for um, what's going on here. So this is a, a typical Jewish wedding that, um, that Jesus has been invited to. And during that time, weddings were kind of a really, really big deal. This was something that they would have um, planned and prepared for, um, for a year to really um, lean into this event. This would have been kind of the, the biggest party um, that this particular um, couple would have ever participated in. This would be the, um, the biggest momentous moment in their lives. People are going to look back on this. It's just a, a really, really big deal. Typically, they would um, take place over seven days that this celebration would occur. And so this is a, this is a really, really big deal. And it would have been a, a pretty big um, faux pas for um, the couple to not provide enough wine for this, um, this celebration. All right? And here's some, some context behind this is that during this time, they didn't have a whole lot of choices in what to drink in terms of what would be clean. Basically, you have water, you have wine. They, didn't, they weren't having a lot of other things, like Dr. Pepper wasn't around during this time. You know, they didn't have sweet tea and lemonade that could fill up some jugs with, right? Like, there wasn't a lot of options. And so these were the, the two kind of main things that they would be um, provided. And so if you didn't provide enough wine for a huge celebration like this, you would look, be looked very, very down upon, right? Because it would have meant that maybe you were too cheap. Maybe you didn't plan well enough. This would have been something that people would have talked about this for many years to come. In fact, there are even some um, things that show that there were some lawsuits that were taken out against people who didn't provide enough wine, right? How crazy is that? Think about if you were at a wedding, right? And the cake was a little dry and you're like, you know what? I'm taking you to court, right? Kind of a, a crazy idea, but that's how big of a deal this was. I remember um, when I um, got married, um, we me and my wife um, celebrated our 10-year anniversary this past May. And we got married over at the Botanical Gardens um, here in Statesboro. And the day of, um, we, you know, typically with um, weddings, you um, have the ceremony. And then after that, you've got the reception and usually there's a dinner served or something like that. Well, we knew that we would be taking pictures after um, the ceremony. We'd have the first dances, all those types of things. And we didn't want people to have to wait to eat so that we could just kind of get through all of our things. So we said, y'all go ahead and eat. We're going to take care of all this stuff. And then we'll come back and we'll have our dinner. And so we finish up with pictures, the first dances, all that. And at this point, I'm just starving. And I'm getting pretty excited about this meal, right? We had planned this meal. We knew what we were going to eat. I get um, probably too excited about eating, just in general, um, and even more so on this day. And so I'm like, let's do this. I'm about to feast on this meal. And I go over, and where they have the food set out has been all put away. And I'm like, that's odd. Um, so I kind of go over to the kitchen. I said, hey, excuse me, I, I kind of need to get my, my dinner. They're like, oh, sir, I'm sorry, the um, food's out. You know, we're, we're done serving. And I kind of look around, and I go, but, I, but I'm the groom. And, like, immediately, like, the caterer's, like, face just dropped. She didn't even realize who she was talking to. And she's like, oh, my gosh, sir, you, you go sit down. I'll, I'll get something for you. Like, not to worry. We'll, we'll find something. And, like, they ended up figuring something out. But, like, it would be a big issue if you were a caterer of a wedding and you failed to feed the groom and the bride, right? Pretty big deal. That's kind of the significance of what's going on here, right? To fail to provide enough wine would have been a really, really big issue. Now, we know from what we read here is that Jesus is invited to this, right? Mary's invited to this. This probably would have been somebody that was a, a close family friend, a relative. Um, you can see that Mary has some type of involvement with hospitality, with, with providing the meal. And so it's something that they are really involved in what's going on here. And so she has some type of role 
specifically in this, right? At this point also, we need to understand that we read at the very end of this is that how this was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. So up until this point, he hadn't, to, to what our knowledge is, he hadn't performed any miracles. He would have been looked at as probably a pretty, not probably, as an extraordinary man, right? We know that in Luke's account, it talks about when he was 12 years old, like he went down to the temple courts and he was asking questions and people were just amazed by the questions and the answers that he was providing. And so clearly people would have looked at Jesus and said, there's something different about that guy, right? There's, there's something significant about that. But Mary probably wasn't thinking in her mind, oh, Jesus can perform a miracle. That wasn't really the, what was going on in her mind. She knew that maybe in the past he had like a unique way of you know, solving issues and things like that. But really what, what Mary's doing here is she's basically coming to him as a frantic mom going, I'm in charge of all this. We're running out of wine. I'm going to my son. Hey, I just, I need your help. All right, I need you to help me. You're my son. Like whatever we got to do, I, I need your help to be able to take care of this, right? So she's using kind of her authority as Jesus's mom, just his re regular mom to say, I need your help with this. Like, I don't know what to do. We're out of wine. I need your help to do this. Now, here's what's interesting, and maybe you picked up on this when we were reading the text, is look at how Jesus responds to his mom. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, I don't know about you, that was a little odd when I read that, right? I was kind of thrown off by that, and I don't want any of you leaving here and going, look, I'm just going to uh, do things in the way that Jesus would have me do them, and the next time my mom asks me to do something, I'm going to look at her, and I'm going to say, woman, what does this have to do with me, right? Here's my encouragement for you. Um, don't do that uh, for two reasons. The first is you are not Jesus, right? The second reason, and many of your moms have probably informed you of this, she brought you in this world and she can bring you out, right? So not a smart idea, but so why is it that he responded in this way? And here's one of those situations where sometimes the original language trying to be translated into English, it doesn't always work perfectly well. And so what's happening here, there's actually some translations, they actually put the word dear in front of this. So it's dear woman to try to soften up how he's approaching her. He's not insulting her at this moment. Like he's not trying to disrespect her, but it's not necessarily a warm reaction either. What we begin to see happen here is Jesus is separating or, or shifting from being Mary's son to being God's son, the savior of the world. And so he's beginning to shift that relationship. So now he's not appealing to her any longer as his mom, but he's saying, I'm now the son of God. And so the way I'm going to go about things is no longer under kind of your authority as my parent, but under the authority of my father. A couple chapters later, it says this, it says, um, that he says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. So what we see is that Jesus is basically saying, like, I'm only going to do what God's calling me to do. So even though you're asking me to do this, I'm no longer kind of under your authority. I'm only going to do what the father tells me to do. But what's interesting is seemingly he does do what Mary was wanting him to do. So why is that? The only thing that I can conclude is that at some point along the way, Jesus paused, he stepped away and he says, Father, is this what you would have me do? Right, I'm being asked to do something, but is this what you want me to do? And apparently God kind of gave him the go-ahead. God said, yes, this is what I want you to do. But use this as an example for us. Even Jesus sought out God for every decision that he makes. And for us as believers, we are to be like 
Jesus. And so we are to do the same as no matter what decision we're making in our life, are we going to the Father and saying, Father, is this what you would have me do? Now we get to verse, um, verse 5. And these are the, the next three verses are the three verses that I feel like I really want us to pay attention to. And what I want us to do is I want us to put our... Um, Put, put ourselves in the shoes of the servants, right? The servants that are represented here, right? Oftentimes as Christians throughout scripture, we're referred to as servants, right? We're referred to as servants of God. And so I want us to think about that in that context is that we're the servants in this scenario. And now we have Jesus instructing us on something to do. And so it says this, it says, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. More than likely, the context of what was going on here is that Mary's like, look, I don't know what else to do. I got so many other things to do. Jesus, you're in charge. Hey, whatever he says to do, you, you all go do it. And like, she moves on and goes to do something else. But what I want us to put ourselves and really think about is the scenario that we have Jesus, right? The son of God who's instructing his servants to be able to accomplish a task. And she says, do whatever he tells you to do. The way a lot of times you've heard it said um, from, from this church, and it's actually one of our core values is like, listen to God, do what he says. Listen to God, do what he says. This is the example where we see this take place because here's the example of Jesus is instructing what to do and they were responding to that instruction. So it says this, it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, you need to understand the reason that they had all this water present is that for a big gathering like this, there would have been a lot of things that they would have to have um, basically um, cleaned themselves to make themselves right back in the eyes of the Lord. So a lot of water was needed for the amount of guests that would have been here. So that's why they have all of this water present. And I wanted to be able to give a kind of a visual example of the sheer amounts of water that we're talking about here, right? So I have this 55-gallon barrel right here. And so you think about it would probably be around two to three of these barrels right here is visually the amount of water that we're talking about. And so I want you to think about and, and be able to visualize, one, just how big of a miracle this was, just how much wine Jesus was actually converting from water, but then also just the significance of how much water was actually having to be filled in these particular barrels, right? It goes on, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Fill the jars with water. Two things I want to point out just from that verse right there. This might not seem like a big deal, right? But understand this. You know what they didn't have back then? They didn't have one of these, right? They couldn't go up to a faucet, hook it up, come on over here, throw this in here, and be like, all right, I'll come back to that when it fills, right? They had to go to a well, right, probably get some small buckets, literally fill up this bucket, come over here, fill it up, and fill it up, and fill it up. What was being asked of these servants was kind of a big deal, right? This was going to be a lot of work. It didn't make sense. It wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be fun. It was going to cost these servants something, right? What Jesus was asking was going to cost them something. But from what we can tell, the second thing is they didn't seem to ask the question, but why, Jesus? Why are you asking us to do this? They had never seen him perform a miracle before, right? They weren't, they weren't thinking that this is what he was going to play. All he told them, fill these things with water. They're probably going, but what's that have to do with the wine that we need? Why are you asking me to do this? But it doesn't seem like that's what they said. As a servant of God, 
their response wasn't, but why Jesus? How many times do we neglect doing something Jesus says because we ask, but why Jesus? Why do I have to do it that way? That's gonna be a lot of work, Jesus. That's gonna be uncomfortable. I'm not gonna enjoy doing that. That's gonna be hard. That's not really what I had in mind. How is this going to solve this, Jesus? How often do we do that? How often do we pose that question? But see, these servants, that's not what we see. It continues after that. And it says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. They didn't just fill them. If, if I was told, hey, can you fill that thing up with water, right? Make sure it's full. I'm thinking, you know, not here, right? It's full, right? How often when we hear something God's calling us to do, like that we do it as literally far as we can possibly do it. Think about some scenarios. When I ask my children to go clean their room, here's what I can tell you they're not doing. They're not sliding the bed out, right? Sweeping up underneath there, right? They're not going through all their drawers, making sure they're perfect, right? They're not exceeding my expectations when I ask them to go clean the room. Growing up when I played baseball, and um, anytime you would get a hit and you had to run to first base, it was the coaches would always say, like, you run as hard as you can, even if you don't think you're going to, to make it, right? No matter what you did, and if you slowed down halfway there because you knew you were going to get thrown out, like, you're running laps afterwards, right? They wanted to ensure that you literally did as much as I was physically able to do to get to first base. These servants, they said, you know what? You're asking us to fill this with water. We are going to literally physically do as much as we possibly are able to do. Is that how we respond to when God asks us to do something? Again, they didn't, have, they didn't know he was going to turn it into wine. If they knew that he was going to turn it into wine, they probably would have brought out some other jars. They're like, hey, I got some cups over on the camel over here. I'll go get them. Can you fill this up too, Jesus, right? Because like, this, this is going to be a huge miracle. They didn't even understand that. They just responded to what they were asked to do without questioning it, without wondering. They just said, Jesus is asking us to do something, and I'm going to do it. The other thing to note is think about this, right? The miracle itself, right, is he's converting 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. Right? This is probably 3,000 to 4,500 glasses of wine, right? That's a lot of wine. Right? This is a crazy miracle, right? Crazy to think that he was able to do that. But if he was able to do that, couldn't have he filled these things by himself? Couldn't he just like snap his fingers and, right? It just fills up? Why did he invite these servants to be a part of that? Because so often what we see is what we see in scriptures. We see God and we see Jesus inviting us to be a part of the mission. We get to be a part of what God is doing. That's incredible. One of the opportunities that I feel like I miss out on far too often, the opportunity that God is inviting me to participate in is prayer. Prayer, just as I said earlier, it's powerful and it's effective. It can literally change things. And God invites us in to be a part of him moving in extraordinary ways. Prayer is God inviting us to be a part of the miracle. Are we participating in that? So when we look at these verses, here's what I want us to take away. As servants of God, when we're putting ourselves in, in the shoes of the servant, as servants of God, we are called to do as Jesus instructs, whatever that may be. 
We fight the urge to ask why with reckless obedience to the point it almost seems like overkill. All so that we may participate in the mission and miracle of Jesus. For us, as believers, as servants of God, this example is what we are to do each and every day. That is what we are called to do. So what are these last verses in this passage, um, what is this really displaying? Here's what I think it's displaying. It goes on and it says that they told them to draw out some and to take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted it. Um, and had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. The, one of the things that I see is the fact that this miracle that was taking place, it was kind of a, a private miracle in a way, right? It was reserved to a select group of people. It says that only the servants knew where this wine came from, right? The disciples, were, they were probably present there too, and so they knew where it was coming from. It was probably good that they didn't tell the master of the banquet where this came from, because imagine just looking at this one, any of y'all want to drink from this thing, right? Probably not, right? It doesn't look too appealing. Like, think about these ceremonial, basically, containers that were used for cleansing, right? Wouldn't have exactly been the, the cleanest of things, and yet this is what they brought to him, right? It's kind of good that he didn't know that. But see, here's the thing. He had a specific small audience, and I wonder, why is that? And what I think is the case is that sometimes Jesus does the extraordinary privately because he is a personal God. He wants to reveal himself to you and to you and to you all individually. Sometimes he reveals things to us and he shows us things not on a big, huge, grand stage. He said, I want to reveal myself to you because here's the thing. I want you to see this not as some big miracle, but because I want you to see me. I want you to see who I am, what, what you mean to me. We often forget that God is revealing himself to us all the time. And much of that time, it's very unique to us and not always some big display. Last night, um, me and my friends, we were together for a, a Christmas party that we do every year, and it's a really good time. And um, my um, two little girls were staying with my parents, and so um, we, were, we were coming home. They actually went ahead and brought them home and got them in their PJs. And so the, the idea was by the time we got there, they'd be ready to go to bed, and it'd be an easy process. So we walk in the door, and they had decided to watch a movie. And we go in, the living room literally has pillows, like, all over the floor. They've made themselves, like, a huge, like, bed fort on the floor. And literally both girls passed out. Like they, they couldn't hang. My parents were just kind of sitting there like, yeah, they just they couldn't hang with us. And it's like they're watching Frosty the Snowman on the TV. But like it was just really adorable. And then we as parents had to kind of do that thing where you try to pick up your child without waking them up, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a unique special gift set, but many parents, you know um, how to achieve this and you know how important it is not to wake them up because you don't want to deal with them waking up and then having to put them back to sleep. And so my wife got my youngest Adeline to bed and so I go to get Harper, my oldest. Um, she's six years old. And so the older they get, the harder of a process this is to, wake, to pick them up without waking them up, right? So I'm trying to be delicate here. And so like I go to start picking her up, but like she's a big girl, so it took a little bit, right? So, um, but like I go to pick her up and she starts to kind of wake up a little bit. And I'm like, oh no. But she wakes up and she kind of starts helping me and kind of throws her arms over me. And in the midst of kind of being asleep and being awake, kind of in the, that small little in-between, she just goes, I love you so much. And just throws her head on my shoulder, right? Adorable. Like, and see, here, here's the thing. Here's 
cards on the table. My children drive me bananas, okay? I've shared many of stories of the things that they do. They literally, they drive us up the wall. It is just nonstop whining and fighting and bickering and just, ah, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just rough, right? And then, but there's moments like that, right? Moments like that where in the midst of my daughter kind of being halfway asleep, the first thing that came to her mind was, I just, I love you so much. Here's what, here's what happened in that moment. You know what that moment, who that moment was for? Me and her. It was just a special little moment of her just expressing her love to her father. And it was unique. It was unique to me. It was a special thing that we had. It wasn't a, it wasn't a social media post that she did. Let me tell you how much I love my dad, right? It wasn't a card. It wasn't a gift. It was just a special thing that made the world and meant the world to me. Here's the, here's the thing. Oftentimes, that's how Jesus is wanting to express himself to us. His small, unique moments that aren't these big displays. And are we aware of this? The second thing that these verses show is Jesus wasn't trying to highlight himself or even the miracle. What he was trying to do is he was trying to raise up the bridegroom. Because I said earlier, the groom would have been responsible for providing all of this wine, right? And for him not to have provided enough, would have, he would have been disgraced. He would have been looked at and judged. And what does Jesus do is we see this master of the banquet. He highlights and celebrates his bridegroom and says, other people... They do the good wine first, and you save this for last. This will be something that now will be remembered for years to come. Remember when that couple, they did that incredible act of love? And that, so Jesus is highlighting and elevating somebody else, not himself. And the final thing that we offer is that when the master of the banquet tries this, he goes, this is the best. What Jesus offers is the best. And it's important for us to understand that. Here's the thing, this first miracle, what it's representing is it's representing the new covenant replacing the old covenant. This new, this old covenant, which represented the ceremonial washing, right, represented us having to try to do what we can to make ourselves right in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus took that and used this as kind of a metaphor to say, what I'm going to do is going to be better than that. In fact, it's going to be the best. I'm going to take the dirty the broken, and I'm going to turn it into something new. He's laying out and presenting through this first miracle what he's here to come to do. The rest of his ministry is going to be doing that. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't replace the water. He transformed the water. For many of us, he takes what is broken, what is old, what is dirty, what is messed up, and he transforms us into something new. This miracle made it clear and apparent to the disciples who he was and what he was capable of. This would set the stage for the rest of his ministry and what he was here to do, what he was here to accomplish. But see, here's the thing. From the very first miracle that we saw Jesus do through this to the very last one he did here on earth of raising, being raised from the dead, right? Here's the thing that so often happens. As we look at all these things, but we can tend to forget. This passage, a very familiar passage, the reason it's good to circle back on familiar passages is because we tend to forget. The reason we talk about the gospel a lot here at Connection is because we tend to forget. And Jesus, in his goodness, 
he kind of knew that was going to be the case, right? It was almost like he was God or something, right? Because here's what Jesus did. At the end of his life, right before he went to the cross, he got his disciples together, and he gave, this, gave us this incredible, holy gift of communion. What he did is he gathered them together, and he says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As, we're, as believers, we're instructed to continue to do this, to do just as Jesus did for these disciples. And we do this so that we may remember what Jesus did for us, so that we may remember these accounts that we see in Scripture of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of what he's capable of, of how he invites us in to be part of his miracle. We're reminded of how he takes the old and he makes it new, how he takes the broken and he restores it, and how no matter what happens in our life, that we are to stop and to come back and to be reminded of all that Jesus did and all that he continues to do and how he sacrificed himself for us broken sinners, separated from God, but in his great love said, I'll take the responsibility. I'll die on your behalf. I'll restore your relationship with the Father. And what I ask is that if you accept that, will you remember me doing that? Will you do that time and time again? Because I wanna know you intimately like that. And I want to have the opportunity for us to continue to celebrate that. And so for us as believers, this is something that we as believers are to do. And so if you're still trying to figure out the Jesus thing, you're not quite there yet, you know, I, I encourage you, just you can stay in your seat for this. It's kind of like baptism. It's kind of something only for believers to participate in. But what we're called to do is we're called before we do this is to kind of reflect on our life and go, God, are there areas that you're still working on me on? Are there areas that I need to seek your forgiveness on? I encourage you to do that. And then as an act of obedience, as an act of worship, as an act of celebration, I ask that you will come and that you take the elements. And what you'll do is there's bread on these plates. You'll take a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the juice, and then you'll eat it. If you drop the piece of bread, we got more. You don't need to go diving in, right? So we'll do that. Chase is going to sing. We're going to do just as the disciples did. They're, they're going to take... They're going to participate in this, and then we're going to sing together and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, y'all can come as you are ready, and then uh, I'll come back out and we'll kind of close things up. Father, we love you, God. And we're so thankful for, for the forgiveness of sins through your son, Jesus.
for what he came to this earth to do. God, from the very first miracle to the last, God, we see your goodness and we see how you, every example, every miracle, every parable, every choice that Jesus made all was so that we may see you see your goodness, to see your faithfulness, to see what you were trying to show us, to see how you wanted to take the broken things of this world and to make them new. God, what an honor it is this morning for us to participate in the same way that your disciples who were in that room together got to do it. And God, here's the thing. You were in the room with them and you are in the room with us. What a joy that we can participate in this with you here. How incredible. Let this be an act of worship, an act of surrender for what you have done for us. Father, we love you, God, and we praise you. I want to lift this up in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. For those that are gluten intolerant as well, we do have an um, area right over there to, to my far right if you need to um, do that instead. But y'all come as you will. <laughs>